0: Well, uh, this week I looked up in an online uh, dictionary the word slacker. And the word slacker is defined as the following it's someone who can't be relied on to do a job or finish a project. Uh, slackers avoid any kind of effort, uh, they put it putting it off work, uh, getting someone else to do it for them. And uh, originally I would have thought the, the word slacker uh, was kind of originating in the 90s. At least that's when I feel like I first heard that. As a matter of fact, uh, some of you may have seen this. There's actually a movie made in 1991 called slackers i don't think it won any awards but it's actually this word's been around i found out since the late 1800s in the early 20th century sudanese workers protested their lack of voice and power by slacking or working very slowly so that's how the origin of that word slacker as far back as i could trace it now full disclosure i'm a big fan of the word slacker i just like the way it sounds amen feels good to look at someone and call them a slacker every now and then am i right And so I like that word. When I was in college, I worked uh, as a job at Tom Raper in Richmond, Indiana, and I sold truck caps. Very lucrative, by the way. I just want to share that, All right. And uh, during that time, I worked with a guy, and his name was Dale. And Dale was an older guy, and Dale had a very fiery personality. And on Dale's desk, we had these little metal desks there in the truck cap cargo trailer office, uh, separated by these little cubicle kind of walls. And so Dale was in the cubicle next to me and on dale's desk he had a business card holder and the back business card uh, the very last one the back business card on the back of it where only dale could see it dale had written in all caps in terrible penmanship as big as he could slacker and if dale went through a slump where dale wasn't uh, selling very well uh, dale would just randomly yell out what are you dale a slacker and it scared me to death next door, right? And so uh, Dale was uh, could be apparently a little bit of a slacker, but when I read our text this week, apparently there were some slackers in the church at Thessalonica, and Paul is not having it, all right? So take your Bibles, your devices, and turn with me uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for the final message uh, in our series this morning titled, Scripture for Slackers. little commercials is your... Turning there, uh, we're going to kick off Missions Month next month. And so uh, we got a vision night coming up. And so I think that's the second Sunday night. And so you'll hear a little bit more about that later. Please, please sign up to that. It's kind of us giving some direction about where we're going the next two years. And so we've never done that before, that kind of strategic ministry plan. So make plans to be here. We'll also have a Blitz week that third week of October, all campuses at our Middletown uh, campus. And then also, starting next week, uh, we're going to be doing what we're going to call a high invite series. Uh, The series is simply titled Hope. We're going to talk about gospel hope for things like uh, anxiety and grief and uh, worry and bitterness and all kinds of things. And so it is a wonderful uh, opportunity for you to invite someone to join you starting next week for this series called Hope. uh, Because everybody in the world wants more hope. And so I would encourage you to invite someone and be, be here with that. Maybe it's your one that you pray for every single week. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, Let's begin looking at verse 6 down through verse 15 this morning. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to uh, imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were uh, with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, if you've been with us in this whole series, uh, when you look at this passage and hear what he's talking about and slackers or people are idle or busybodies, it, it almost seems like this shouldn't have been in the Bible, right? Like there's some unintended detour that he's talked about false teachers. Uh, he's talked about the Lord's return. He's talked about the Lord's coming judgment. And then he wraps it all up with some uh, some counsel, some correction to people who are idle or who are slackers. And so uh, basically what he's uh, describing here uh, is that what's happening is in this passage, these are people who some translations uh, translated this idleness as unruly. Uh, in the Greek, it literally means they are out of Uh, order and uh, paul actually addressed this in his first letter to the church at thessalonica Uh, listen to this in first thessalonians chapter four he said but we urge you brothers to do this and more to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that now anytime you see so that in scripture it's a cause and effect statement He's saying, I want you to do these things, to work hard with your hands, to live a quiet life, not to be a busybody. And then he says, so that, here's the intended outcome, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. What's he saying? He's saying a lazy person is a terrible witness to those who don't know Jesus Christ. He said it's actually an issue of your gospel witness. And and apparently, the believers at Thessalonica, they just disregarded that. So he said that in book one, in his first letter to them in chapter four, he kind of gave this some instruction. Apparently they disregarded his counsel. So he's circling back around and he's addressing it again here in second Thessalonians chapter three. So, so that's how this kind of flows together. So it's not out of context, but even more so there's a real direct, uh, direct connection here. All right. So uh, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Basically most scholars would argue what was going on was this. Is it they had been deceived that the Lord was coming back or that the Lord had already come back? Or there was all this talk about Jesus' return that we talked about in uh, chapter 2 that some of the people there in Thessalonica said, hey, the Lord's coming back. Why waste your time with work? Why, why do this work? Because the Lord's coming back. All this is going to be futile. And so they begin to uh, live off of other people. Uh, they begin to drain the resources of other people with all their extra downtime because they weren't working. Uh, apparently, according to the text, they had become busybodies uh, in the church and uh, began spreading false teaching. Uh, and so Paul says, Hey, you're a busybody. Which, by the way, if someone calls you a busybody, not a compliment. Did you know that? They're not saying, wow, you stay really busy. Uh, basically, they're saying, uh, you're a gossip. And so, what was happening here, so uh, all their downtime, they just spent that not in building up or edifying, but in being a busybody. So, one of the antidotes to being a gossip is to be a hard worker. For a person who's idle, who's lazy, who's unruly, they've got way too much downtime. And so, they fill in those gaps, sometimes being tempted to be a busybody stirring up dissension, and that's what's happening here. So Paul's basically saying, hey, I don't care if you think the Lord is coming back, I don't care if you think he's already came back, that I'm going to offer a word of correction about your idleness, because to use the Greek, you're out of step. You're causing dissension with your downtime, you're draining the resource of those who are working hard, and you're hurting the corporate witness of the church. And so Paul is not having it. He's going to hit it head on. So what I want you to see in this passage is three biblical principles in dealing with people uh, who will not work. And so you can use this at your management meetings, you can use this in your year-end annual review, and thank me later, all right? So three principles I want you to see in this passage. The first one is simply this, is that laziness is a sin that needs to be addressed. If we're honest this morning, we don't, we don't put the words love and correction together, do we? We don't don't often associate, we think those things would actually be contrasting truths, not complementary truths, but but all throughout the scripture. And here's another example. What we see in the scripture uh, multiple times is that to love someone well is to speak truth into their lives in a gentle, faithful, motivated by love way. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that faithful are the wounds of a friend. What does that mean? That even though it hurts, you know that person's motivated by love and they help you see things that your heart may have gotten blind to. And so uh, scripture teaches over and over and over that to love someone well is to do what's best for them, not what's easiest for you. And so guess what? Sometimes that means speaking up about a hard truth, offering a word of correction because you love them to leave them over to the consequences of their sin and sit back and remain silent because it's easier for you because it's uncomfortable to have that conversation. So uh, what he's saying here is, hey, listen, these things go together, right? Right? There's no such thing as loving someone and not doing whatever it is that's best for them, not what's easiest uh, for you. And I know that's hard because we're teaching that, preaching that timeless truth uh, set against the backdrop of a culture that often wants to yell, uh, you're judging me. You're judging me. And the call to judgment is not to judge hastily, it's not to condemn someone, it's not to judge someone's salvation. But it's not to live with a lack of discernment and speak up about people who are ruining their lives through sinful patterns of living. Biblical love is not the absence of accountability. Biblical love is not the absence of consequences. Uh, biblical love is, uh, doesn't mean avoiding having difficult conversations. Biblical love seeks the highest good of the other person and ultimately wants to see them more than anything, more than my own comfort, to see that person fully conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And so if I love them, I've got to speak up and speak truth in their lives. And so this is an area where he says, hey, I've already said this once, back a book, but I'm going to speak to this again because I want better for you as a spiritual father. He's addressing these people, and the Bible uh, could not be more clear that this is an issue or an issue of sin that needs to be uh, addressed. Matter of fact, you may not know this, that a person who will not work to provide for the needs of their family is actually in incredibly spiritual dangerous territory listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 but if a person but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially to those of his own household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever now, that's strong enough, but it's even more shocking when you realize there's only one other sinful instance in the Bible where the, uh, the occasion of sin, he says, hey, you're, you're like an unbeliever or you're worse than an unbeliever. So he says at one time about a person who won't work to provide for the needs of their household. But the only other time he says that, uses that language like an unbeliever if you're engaged in sin, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was a guy was involved in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. Listen, uh, Jerry Springer has nothing on the Bible. Amen? (laughs) The Bible is a real account of real people whose lives are really jacked up sometimes, right? And so those are the only two occasions where he says, hey, this particular sin, you're worse than an unbeliever. So it's in that same category of sin that he addresses this person who's involved in this incestuous, immoral uh, relationship. And uh, so these these are strong words. He says, hey, I I can't let this go. This is a big deal. Now, it's incredibly important to make a pause and make a distinction here. That this is not a warning uh, for those who uh, cannot work. Those who have come to a place of either in the inner man or in the outer man, uh, an issue of disability. He's not offering, say, hey, whoever doesn't work, that person shouldn't eat. As a matter of fact, when a person becomes to the place of, of disability, the church should rally, uh, come alongside of it, and provide for their basic needs. Did you know this? It's the church's job, not the government's job, to come alongside and meet the needs of people. Did you know that? And people get all stirred up like the government shouldn't be doing that. You know why they have to do that? Because we don't. I digress. Anyway, but what he's saying, this is this is a warning not for people who cannot work due to infirmity or disability. This is a warning for those who will not work. And but even though Paul's offering a strong word of correction, I want you to notice it is saturated with love and gentleness and humility and mercy. Paul, Paul uses these words uh, three times in these verses. He calls them brothers or brethren. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm offering some correction, but make no mistake. I love you like family. I love you so much that I cannot remain silent and watch you uh, fall to the consequences of your sin in this area. So the fact that he's calling them brothers three times in the midst of this correction speaks to the gentleness with which it's offered. The Bible speaks about that truth In the great passage in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritually mature is what he's saying. Listen to what you do as a mark of spiritual maturity. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore in the original language has the same idea of bringing healing. And so he says, hey, if you're, if you're really a spiritually mature person, that when you come to the place of correction, then what are you going to do? You're going to uh, speak those words gently. You're not going to be excited to Have you ever ran into someone and they say, hey, I, I hate to share this with you, but you can tell by, by the smile on their face, they're actually a little excited to share this word of correction with you. You know that person? Raise your hand if you're sitting next to them. <laughs> yeah, if you're scared, just blink your eyes really fast, right? We all know. That's not Paul's heart. That's not it. He said, listen, we're family here. That's why I'm saying these things, that I want to restore you or bring healing, but I want to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Now, how do you know that you're in a place to do, to live that truth out Uh, when it comes to word of correction, it's uncomfortable, all those kind of things? It's real simple. You don't want to. When you're excited... When you're coming down in a condemning tone, you feel a little morally, spiritually superior, you, you want to judge that person, uh, I would say condemn, but you can't condemn anyone who's in Jesus Christ, praise God, Romans 8.1. But when I really love them, I don't want to have that conversation. Why? Because I know these words are going to be hard to receive, but I love them too much to remain silent. And so that's exactly what's going on. He says, hey, brothers, 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 three times in the passage, uh, this is a sin issue that you're out of step on. Your idleness is hurting your witness. You're spreading gossip in the church, and you're draining the resource of those. Even if you think the Lord's coming back, get busy. That's what he's saying. And so he said, this is an issue that has to be uh, addressed. And so Paul's so committed to this reality that that go back to verse 6 and look what he says. He says, we command you, not a suggestion. Not, hey, as you're considering all the counsel of how to handle the situation, take this into consideration. He says, we command you, verse 6, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. I don't know, this could be translated again, unruly, that'd be biblically correct. And so think of it this way, laziness is a form of unruliness, but there's lots of ways to be unruly or out of step uh, besides being lazy, but that's one of them that he's addressing here uh, in this passage. So what's he saying here uh, on brass tacks where the rubber meets the road? He says, hey, if you've got a person in your circle of influence that you have a relationship with, you both are walking in the Lord, you're experiencing fellowship, which is koinonia, sharing in the Lord is what that means. And that person won't work, won't provide, just living off of other people. They're involved in idleness, unrulyness. What he's saying is here, he says, mark that person. What does that mean? Take note of their behavior and have nothing to do with that person. Now, why is that? We're going to get that in just a little bit because he makes some booking statements. But remember what the Bible says? Bad company corrupts good character, not the other way around. And so he says, this is serious to the point where you should, you should mark that person and, and there should be a distancing in your fellowship if they won't come to repentance through your correction that's motivated by love and saturated in gentleness. But then also before we do that, uh, we should make sure we're not hypocrites. Look at verse 7 and 9. Paul says, like, like I, I could have made a living from the gospel. That's, that's my right as an apostle. But I don't want anyone to, to accuse me of being motivated by money in ministry and so what's he saying, in verse seven through nine? He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse nine, it was not because we do not have the right. Paul says, totally appropriate that those who preach the gospel and live the gospel make their living from the gospel. So that's not an issue. He said, but to give you ourselves as an example, to imitate. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I modeled this for you, so I'm not being a hypocrite here, and I love you, brothers, 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 three times in the text, but this is an issue that's hurting the church, hurting your witness, and I have to speak in this, not because it's easy for me, but because I love you too much to remain silent. Paul wanted to model uh, integrity in his work life relationships, and so he addresses it in the first letter, in chapter 4, he addressed it here at the end uh, in chapter 3. And so what does this mean uh, practically, all right? Here's what this means. If you're listening, say amen. amen. While your work should not become uh, an idol or your identity, you should work hard to represent Jesus well. Uh, listen, the, 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 the term lazy Christian employee uh, is an oxymoron. When I first got home from, from Bible college, uh, I took a job at Dillard's. That's what I went to school for. <laughs> and I worked at Dillard's, and I was there, and I kind of shared my testimony, and there were some people I got to work with, I found out they were Christians too, and uh, there was a guy who had been a Christian for a long time, and, and he shared his story, and he said, you know what, he said, I try to work really hard, it's kind of a side job for him, and he said, because I worked years ago for a guy, and he found out I was a Christian, And this is what he said. He said, I never forgot it. He said, the guy said, well, I hope you do better than most of the Christians. He said, quite frankly, uh, I often, if I know someone's a Christian, I often try on purpose not to hire them, not because I've got anything against Jesus, but in my experience, Christians are lazy and they want you to forgive them because they're Christians. Folks, your boss should say, I don't. Love your Jesus, but I sure love how you represent him well as an employee at this job. And if that doesn't describe us, then guess what? Paul's saying, Hey, I love you too much to be quiet. I'm going to address this issue around idleness or unruliness. A mature Christian and a lazy employee should be like oil and water. Second principle we see in this passage is this be careful about rescuing people from consequences. Over the last 21 years, I have uh, counseled with people as a pastor, and I've often had to deliver the unpleasant news that their behavior, that generally motivated by love for their children, is actually. Hurting their child, not helping their child. Because every time this kid's had a pattern of bad behavior, every time that kid's going to have some really bad consequences, whatever those consequences are, mom and dad, motivated by love, oh, want to swoop in and rescue that child because they love them so much that they can't see them bear the weight of those painful consequences. And I've just had to tell them, I said, hey, you don't want to hear this. You're not helping them, you're hurting them. That if you rescue them from every painful consequence out there, what you're teaching them is you're negating the principle that, that rebellion equals pain. I've told my house before, I said, hey, if you ever get in jail, don't call me to bail you out. The only person who's ever tested on me is Tasha. <laughs> She's still not allowed to be a patron at the Liberty Inn down the street. I didn't want to go into it. I don't want to talk about it. I mostly share that as a prayer request. But what he's saying is, hey, the, 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 these principles, you, you're hurting these people when you do this. And so, let, let, me, let me share this with you. Everybody look up here. Painful consequences are often a precursor or a catalyst to genuine repentance. Painful consequences are often a catalyst or a precursor to genuine uh, Repentance. Or well, the pain of not changing, you know what, there's only one reason people ever change. That the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of staying the same. And if you try to dial back that pain of not changing an unwise or sinful behavior, what you're saying is, hey, that pain just is a lesson. Then what, guess what, there's no catalyst for, for change. There's no catalyst towards uh, repentance. That's exactly what we see in the story of the prodigal son. Remember when he tells his dad, Hey, I want my money now, my inheritance. And In their culture, that was the same thing as saying, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead to me. And his dad gives him the money. And then he goes off to a, to a far country. You know what the dad does? He doesn't rescue him. He says, I'm not going to give you this money because I don't see you through. You know what he does? He stands on the porch and watches him leave. And what happens? Scripture says he ends up eating with the pigs, which in their culture, clean, unclean, had all kinds of implications besides the sanitary things we think of. And what's he saying in that pig pen? He says, my father's servants have it better than I do. I will arise and go to his house. What happened? The pain of not changing was greater than the pain of staying the same in the pig pen. And those painful consequences of his actions serve as a catalyst to repentance. So listen, parents, dial in on that. Grandparents, dial in on that. Paul agrees with this according to verse 10. Look at verse 10. You should write this down. Maybe you want to get this verse framed and hang it in the kitchen. Look what it says. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And he doesn't say if anyone's unable to work, he says if anyone is not willing to work, let him, so Paul's not trying to add shame to disability, he's trying to add accountability to those who can work but won't work, and what he's saying is, hey, listen, uh, these consequences, they should feel them. Because what's going on in the church is they're living off the generosity of these other people, and they're thinking, "Oh, they're, they're you know they don't have any money, they're not working. They're, we're going to help them." He says, "No, no." He says, "If they won't work, if they can work and won't work, you don't rescue them from those consequences. You you don't let you don't put food on the table, and going hungry will serve as a reminder and a catalyst towards their uh, repentance." And there's a temptation to rescue people. Can we just be honest this morning? It's in church. Can't lie. There's a temptation to rescue people from painful consequences, particularly when they have the same last name as you. Am I right? What's Paul say? Paul says, hey, one of the best things that could happen is let their stomach growl a little bit. Let them feel the weight of those decisions. Let them feel the hunger and and remind themselves, oh, the reason I'm hungry is because I'm sinning. I won't eat. I can work, but I won't work. And these other Christians who want to come inside and rescue them uh, and just say, oh, they don't have any money. We're Christians. We want to help them. No, he says, no, no, no. He says, let their stomach growl. It's the best thing for them. And so remember this, love is doing what's best for someone else, not what's easiest for you. And that truth guards us against the guilt trip. I thought you were a Christian. You should help me. And what you can say with integrity is I do want to help you, but helping can hurt when I rescue you from consequences that can be a catalyst towards genuine repentance. Now, this is strong counsel. I get that. So let's set this counsel against the backdrop of a theology of work. Let me tell you two things that the Bible teaches about work. And why his counsel is so strong, and by the way, it's going to get stronger here at the end, so fasten your seatbelts, all right? So what's the Bible teach? Two things about work. Number one, work is a gift, not a curse. And I know some of you are thinking, you've never met my boss, right? I praise God that our staff here never says that. Amen? <laughs> no, nobody said amen on staff. That's great. And sometimes we say, well, no, 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 work is the result of the fall, that when Adam and Eve fell and, and God cursed her, the pain in childbirth, and God cursed the serpents, like, hey, you're going to have to go on your stomach all the time, and then God cursed the work. No, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. Adam had responsibilities given to him before the fall to take care of the garden, to name the animals, to have dominion over all the earth is what the Bible says. But then as a part of the curse after the fall, listen to what God said in Genesis chapter 3. Curse it is, the, now listen. Does he say cursed is work? No, what's he say? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. All right? So if you're listening, say amen. amen. Notice what he says. God didn't curse work in the fall. He cursed the ground that had to be worked. Apparently, before this, there weren't thorns and thistles, and tilling the ground and getting food from the ground wasn't as difficult as it was prior to the fall. And so he said, Now, because the ground you work, not work itself, is cursed, now by the sweat of your brow will you eat bread. So, work is a gift, not a curse. I don't care where you work, it is a gift. Work is one of the God-ordained means for providing dig- dignity, even though it should never define identity in a person. Identity is rooted in Christ. The second thing about work is this. Work is an opportunity to grow in self-discipline. We see this right in this passage. I'm going to read to you verse 7 out of the New American Standard, which I think this is a faithful translation. So listen to what it says. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined way among you. What's he saying? That a person who will not work is giving themselves over to a life of a lack of self-discipline. Let you, listen, let me let you know a little secret here this morning. That lifestyle, that pattern, that thing to, uh, that it's ingrained, it does not end well for anyone. That lack of self-discipline. So work's an opportunity to grow in self-discipline. In case he wasn't clear, skip down to verse 11. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. He says, hey, if you want to grow in the self-discipline of not being a gossip, he says work is one of the things that will stop that. He says, when you're working hard, you don't have time to meddle in other people's business and cause dissension. And then he drives the proverbial nail in the coffin in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. Paul commands, not suggest, Paul commands that idle, irresponsible people should work in quiet fashion and earn their own living. So, moms and dads, grandma and grandpa, quit rewarding sinful, lazy, lack of self-discipline behavior by paying the bills of a person who will not work. You are not helping them, you are hurting them. You are standing in the way, often to a catalyst to their repentance. Do what's best for them because you love them, not what's easiest for you. Praise God. And so that's that's his counsel. And you say, well, what if, what if I've done that? Well, what if that? What if that counsel doesn't work? What if we see a brother in the church and we go to them and realize this is the pattern of life and in love we go to them, not judging them, but loving them and speak gentle, motivated by love, humble truth, and they don't respond? What if they're unmoved by the warnings of the consequence of laziness on their life? What, happen, what do we do then? Well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is, Paul gives an answer for that. The bad news is, it's an uncomfortable one. Because he tells us at some point, this last truth, which is this, is that relationships should be adjusted. This person won't work. They're given to idleness. They're out of order. They're unruliness. All those kind of things. We speak truth in their lives, and uh, he says that that at some point, if they won't heed our counsel, that relationships I- uh, should be uh, adjusted. We have an unwritten but often stated rule at Liberty Heights Church and that's simply this. Uh, we don't teach around tough verses, we teach through tough verses. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be made perfect and thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is given by inspiration, all of it's inspired, even the challenging verses and all of it, that text says, is profitable. So if you don't speak hard truths, you're withholding God-breathed, profitable wisdom and instruction from people who need it like you and like me. And so verse 14 and 15, uh, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging, but it's biblical, so look at it with me. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter... Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Does that sound like verse 6, right? That he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother. Now there's debate about what's going on in these verses, what his counsel is. Some people would argue this is an act of formal church discipline that you Remove this habitual, uh, unrepentant person. They they won't listen to the counsel. They won't come to repentance. They continue in idleness or unruliness, whatever the case is there. And uh, so it's just because of that, you don't have anything to do with them. So they would say he's describing the formal act of church discipline where we remove someone from membership and place them outside the, the body of Christ so that the flesh may be destroyed is what 1 Corinthians 5 says. And in that, In 1 Corinthians 5, what it says here is from that point when someone's removed from the fellowship of the church or church discipline, Scripture says uh, we should treat them like an unbeliever. It doesn't say they are an unbeliever, but we should treat them as if they are one. Now, here's why. Because a truly converted person will not uh, neglect and reject the counsel of coming to repentance, that the Spirit of God would be stirred up inside of them, that they would finally come to the place of repentance. And when they won't, he says, you remove them from the church and you treat them like an unbeliever, which by the way, side note, that doesn't mean you shun them. If you treat unbelievers that way, uh, you're doing it wrong. What does that mean? That means I speak to them, not about idle things like, hey, how's the reds and how's the weather and how's your job going, but I speak to them about faith in Jesus and repentance from their sins. It's not casual anymore. He says, I love you too much to just casually talk about the weather when you've been removed from the fellowship of the church. You're not loving them well, you're doing what's easiest for you, and so, but I don't think that's what's going on here, even though the Bible teaches church discipline. It teaches it, we've practiced it, it's grievous. But it's biblical. In church discipline, uh, there is a process that takes place. And that process is outlined in Matthew chapter 18. It says, "Hey, if someone continues in sin, uh, then someone goes to them and offer a word of uh, accountability, a word of correction." And the Bible says, "If he hears you, you've gained a brother. If he comes to repentance, then praise God, you've gained a brother." Because the whole point of church discipline is not kicking people out. That's the last step. The point of church discipline is restoring them. But then Matthew 18 says, "What if they don't listen?" He says, "Then take two or three people with you. What if they don't listen?" then he says you broaden the circle and then he says this he says and tell it to the church now why do we tell it to the church so that the body of Christ which is the body of accountability for every believer so that we can pursue them in love and if they won't listen he says you're forced to treat them like an unbeliever because a true believer wouldn't respond that way treat them like an unbeliever now notice in our passage what does he say here does he describe treating that person as unbeliever what's he say? Look back at verse 15. What's he say? Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He doesn't call him an unbeliever. He says, warn him, not like an unbeliever. What's he say? Warn him like a brother. So what's going on here? I believe this is those first initial steps of, of church discipline where one person's going and speaking to them about their unruliness or their idleness Maybe two or three people are going, right? But it's not yet got to the place where I call him an unbeliever. He says, no, you should warn him, not treat him like an unbeliever, warn him like a brother because you love him too much to see it come to that where he's removed from the fellowship of the church. Now, I'm going to share something with you that you may not know. Did you know that loving people well is hard and it's messy? And if you're like, I don't think it is, you know what I know about you? You don't have kids, amen? <laughs> How is it possible to love someone so much, but yet want to wear their rear end out for the glory of God? How is that possible, right? <laughs> you ever said this out loud, maybe it crept out, I could kill you, but I love you, right? <laughs> Parents are the only people who tell that lie. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Now, listen, if that actually is true, you didn't whoop them hard enough. Amen? <laughs> if they turn around and say, thank you, sir, may I have another, you got it wrong. I just want to share that, all right? Pain equals rebellion. Remember that principle? So he's not saying, he says, hey, this is a brother. He says, before it gets to that place where we have to treat them like an unbeliever, here's what he's saying. You need to love them enough to have a difficult conversation. Not because it's easy for you, because that's what's best for them. Don't let it get to that place. Don't let it get to the place we have to remove them from the fellowship of the church. This is the place that they should be. Let's pursue them in love. Don't let it get to that place. And so that's uncomfortable. And so why would we do that? Well, We don't have to wonder why. Verse 14 tells us the end goal of this, all right? So here's the end goal of all that. Look at verse 14. Let the text speak for itself, all right? What's verse 14 say? What's the goal of all this? Here it is, verse 14, that he may be ashamed. Let me give you an old-fashioned word, that he may feel conviction. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the great treatise on repentance That godly sorrow, conviction, produces life and worldly sorrow produces death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life and change. And repentance is the, the dam that unleashes the transforming, forgiving grace of God. But that's all preceded by godly sorrow. What's he saying here? So that he may be ashamed, that he may experience godly sorrow. So that you've won a brother while he still can be called a brother let me just share this with you to tolerate sin in anyone's life in your own life in the life of the body of Christ is the most unloving thing you can do to anyone I don't know who said it but it's true Sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. And if you love people and you see them in patterns of sin, whether it's unruliness, laziness, idleness, gossip, dissension, however they're out of order, listen, love them. If you really, truly love that person, you cannot stay silent and watch them drive the car of their life off the cliff and sit back and say, that was a real shame. You know what the shame was? That I didn't love them enough to speak up in the truth of God. I did what was easiest for me, not what was best for them. Now, these are hard truths. And so you may be tempted to say, who actually lives like that? (laughs) Who, Who actually does that? Jesus did. Who does things that's uncomfortable and painful for them for the sacrificial benefit of others? Listen, when you do this, you're modeling the gospel message. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we may experience the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. That's what love looks like. And if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we're going to love people and model the gospel in our relationships, not because we want to, but because we love people too much to stay silent. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And if you've never experienced his saving grace, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask two questions as we meditate on the truth of God's word in this moment. Question number one is this, have you experienced a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there a point in time or a season in your life where you became convicted of your sin and realized your sins separate you from God? Were you declared you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose the third day as payment for your sins, and you cried out in mercy, Jesus Christ, save me. Have you accepted the free gift of salvation today? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then listen, Jesus said, I came so that you may know you have eternal life. Don't put that decision off today, friend. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, 1, don't brag about tomorrow. You don't know what a day brings forth. Don't put that off. Receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right now in your seat. Pray and receive Jesus Christ. Confess your sins, express as desire to turn or repent for them, and receive Jesus Christ alone. Here's a second question. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you this question. Are you sitting on a conversation? with someone that you love, who needs biblical truth spoken in their life, because you know it's going to be hard. Would you pray right now, Lord, by faith, I don't know the outcome, but by faith, I'm going to obey your word in this area. I love them too much to remain silent any longer. I refuse to sit back and watch them destroy their lives. And so, Lord, by faith, I'm going to obey this truth this week. And, Lord, help me to examine my own life first. Help me to be motivated by love, not judgment. Lord, help me to go in a spirit of gentleness where even if they disagree, they don't doubt that I love them. Would you pray that difficult, faith-filled risky obedient prayer right now lord empower me this week i've been sitting on this conversation for too long and i love them to stay silent would you pray that right now lord because of your grace made available by jesus christ we're empowered to obey where we would not obey and you cause us to want what we would not want and lord what we want more than anything is to love people like jesus did And so Lord, help us this week to rely on your grace, not to get worked up or fired up and have a difficult conversation. Lord, we should be yielded to Jesus Christ, Spirit-filled, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, all those things. But God, let us not be silent. Let us love people and seek their greater good, not our own personal comfort. Lord, would you empower us to do By your grace, not our willpower this week, that very thing, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Because it's in his name we can pray and ask. Amen.